Hello, and welcome to another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Today we decided to go back to the Jalo genre, which is uh, something that we visited, oh, sometime last year, I guess. Uh, Craig, I think I introduced you to this uh, type of film, did I not? Yep, yep. And it is an Italian style of film. Uh, it was very popular during the early 70s, late 60s. And this arguably is one of the films that really set it off. Uh, it's called The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and it's Dario Argento's debut film. And uh, uh, compared to the other Jalo pictures, I think it's maybe the most accessible, maybe the most conventional. Giallo pictures, uh, for those who hadn't heard our previous podcast, Giallo means yellow in Italian, and that's a reference to the covers that these cheap pulp detective novels used to be um, printed. They used to be printed yellow, basically, so that you could see them on the shelf. And they'd, be, they'd jump out at you. And so these films are in the same vein in many times actually based off of stories in these cheap crime novels that would have lots of sex and violence and usually some kind of detective story along with it. This is a story about a killer. Like I said before, I think in the, the previous one that we saw, which was uh, Deep Red, which was also by Dario Argento, that being his more popular one, this one has a lot less violence. It's, a, it's not as mm-hmm. gory as the other one. And also, it has a plot that makes sense, I think. <laughs> what do you think, compared yeah. to the other one? Yeah, um, compared to the other one, sure. I would say that this one's a little bit more straightforward, um, kind of crime procedural. Uh, in fact, I... I don't know. I I almost think it's a little bit of a stretch to call it horror. I think that this would fall more neatly into the category of mystery thriller. There's, like you said, there's not a lot of graphic violence. There's some, but most of it is uh, implied. There's a little bit of blood. Um, I don't think, does this have an American rating? I couldn't tell. I don't know. I'm sure it does, but I know I couldn't find anything. Because I would say, you know, PG, PG-13. I mean, this is pretty tame stuff. I mean, especially, yeah, it was 1970, so there were different sensibilities and what then, but um, based on stuff that you would just see on primetime television in America today, this is very tame in terms of uh, violence and blood and um, sex and, and all of those things. It, he does really seem to be holding it back here a bit. There's There's at least one scene in here that I would say is probably would thrust it into the PG-13, if if not, maybe into the R section. So I think it's the second victim um, that gets a little sexual and a little um, suggestive there. Uh, yeah. There's no nudity, but it's it's almost nudity because what she's wearing is so see-through. Um, and the killer right. starts kind of cutting her clothes off. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, aside from that, he really holds it back here. I think, of course, this being his first movie, maybe that's what he was doing. But we know that later on, Dario does a few more giallo pictures as well as uh, some more straight conventional horror pictures like Suspiria. And those are really mm-hmm. well known for their depictions of violence as the whole giallo genre becomes. When this film came out in 1970, this film was so successful that... It actually played at a theater in Milan for like over three years, and it spawned a ton of copycat pictures, uh, a ton of them. Uh, and again, that's why it's really, it really kicks off the giallo genre. Another thing that's interesting about this movie that is good, especially to introduce people into this who may not be familiar and who might be a little hesitant um, to come into these kind of pictures, is that it stars uh, an American actor, and while these 
pictures like a lot of Italian movies of this of this day and age. A, a lot of westerns came out of Italy around this time. Tend to be shot fairly cheaply, which means that often there's not on-set sound recording. So most of the sound and dialogue gets dubbed in later, which can lead to a really strange effect. Even though you have uh, people speaking... Uh, English, or in the case of many of the Italian actors, they're speaking English phonetically, but if you could actually hear what they were saying, it would probably sound horrible. <laughs> but then yeah. they of course be dubbed in later by people who could speak better English. So mouths wouldn't quite match up and, you know, it would have that sort of dubbed feel, even though you could tell, well, they're still speaking the same language. Plus, um, sometimes the acting of the voice actor just clearly something's off. It doesn't quite seem to match the acting of the person on the screen, you know, if that makes sense. Visually, the sound doesn't quite match up visually. It, it leads to something you kind of have to get used to and you kind of have to overlook when you're watching a lot of Italian films from this era. This film, I think, doesn't really have that problem. I mean, it's still clear from the way the quality of the audio and the way that it is that the set, most of the sound wasn't recorded on set. But mm -hmm. the dubbing is fantastic, and it seems like most of the actors in here probably did their own voices after the fact. Yeah, it, it's a, I, I mean, you notice right away, um, and I expected it. You know, I knew that it was an Italian film, so I expected it to be dubbed um, or for there to be subtitles. Um, but, uh, you know, as soon as they started talking, it was very clear that the actors were actually – they were mouthing the words in English, you could tell. And even though it was dubbed, I agree with you, it wasn't distracting. It didn't take me long to get used to it at all. I mean, within a, a couple of minutes, I had kind of forgotten. Um, uh, you just, I don't know, you just kind of roll with it and kind of forget. And it wasn't, I didn't find it distracting at all. Yeah, it also leads to a really interesting aesthetic, which is, again, where I'm going to gush over it again like I normally do with these kind of movies because I love them so much. They're such a guilty pleasure of mine. But one of the aesthetics about watching one of these films that appeals to me is the sound design. And when you have this where the sound is recorded after the fact, uh, they don't seem to take a lot of interest in adding in incidental sounds, like the sounds of rustling through the papers or the sounds of the guy walking through the apartment or just the, the kind of normal tiny little sounds that, that you overlook but you notice when they're missing. Um, and right. all you hear is dialogue and everything else is fairly quiet. And that's something that I think in some cases, particularly in some scenes, really adds to the atmosphere and the feel of these movies. And this movie works with sound in kind of an interesting way as well. Yeah, and it's also got a, an interesting score uh, behind it a lot of the time. It's like, if I remember correctly, now I've only seen it once, um, so I, I may not remember as well as you do, but um, there was a lot of like um, acapella voices singing in the background, but it wasn't... Um, it wasn't songs. It wasn't the, like they were singing songs with lyrics. It was just like lots of la la la's and and stuff like that. And it did add kind of a spooky, atmospheric feel to it. Uh, and and it was it was different. And uh, <laughs> I don't really know how I feel about it. I mean, it it was it just kind of I was like, wow, this is weird music for the background of this. But it did make it kind of spooky and. I don't, I don't know, it just kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable, which I think is good for this type of movie. Yeah, the score in this film was done by Ennio Mor Morricone. Uh, I might not be saying that right, but I mean, he did a ton of scores for even some American films. He was very popular at this time. Maybe uh, 
um, his big American crossover at this time was, I think, the score for Romeo and Juliet. He he did a, a lot of really good music, and uh, this is a little different from from what he had been doing before. He dives a little bit into jazz. He he goes into a little bit of um, oh, I don't know, slightly new agey for the time. Some stuff that's very recognizable as '70s type stuff. Later, Dario Argento would enlist the help of Goblin. Uh, which is a mm. sort of progressive rock band of the era who would do a lot of his other scores. And it's interesting. It almost feels like they might have watched this movie first to get an idea of what he was after and copied some elements of it for his later films. Because, for example, like the Suspiria soundtrack especially uh, has a lot of the voices kind of going. It has one of the creepiest soundtracks, I think, in horror history where Goblin, they're just going... That yeah, I mean it's it's not it's not that kind. It, it's almost like it sounds almost like children in the background, or or it's it's higher in pitch. Oh, um, yeah. But it is it, exactly you know what you were just doing. That's the type of thing that I remembered hearing in the background here. Uh, and it's it's different and not really like much that I've heard before um but it has an interesting effect and so that's cool it is cool well again saying that this movie is very conventional it's going to be a real easy movie to break down i think much easier than deep red was which really goes off on tangents of unbelievability as far as how the detective puts things together and figures it out there are tons of leaps of like how did they get from here to there and then also just straight out coincidences like he's looking through a book and something he sees in the book leads him to a, a building i mean it was just weird stuff what and a lot of the giallo movies are really like that they're a little more interested in atmosphere than they are with plot but this movie is very well plotted i thought at least in comparison uh, it, and it's well filmed. It starts out with a woman walking, and we see uh, that she's walking down the street, and the credits are rolling. But in the meantime, there's occasionally like the screen freezes like a snapshot, and you can tell that we're looking mm-hmm. through the eyes of who, who is going to be the killer um, who's taking photos of this woman as she walks. And the next shot is of his hands selecting a knife. And this is, again, right. a very iconic... Gloved hands. Yeah, exactly. We talked about this the last time, right? Mm-hmm. That it's something that Dario may have started, but it's something that was picked up by a lot of the other Jalo directors, and that is that um, there's a lot of killer POV stuff, and there's even lots of shots of the killer doing his or her thing in between uh, the detective work. But we never see their face, of course. But what we often see are black gloves and even like a black like leather jacket or slicker or something that they're wearing, which is convenient because then you can't really tell if it's a male or female. And uh, and the killer is uh, selecting a a dagger from, like, he's got, like, a a menu, I guess, (laughs) of of daggers (laughs) that he likes to use for his murders. Uh, But it's it's a stylish effect. It's really cool. And a little bit of trivia about uh, our director here is that he always insists on playing the killer's hands uh, in the in this oh, movie, that's funny. It's always him, so it it is a little weird. Actually, it's kind of weird <laughs> when you think about it. He's never really said why, uh, which just makes him seem a little creepier. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, maybe it was maybe it's just for convenience. I mean, you know, like it could be he doesn't have to worry about an, you know directing an actor. He just gets what he wants and and can move on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Well, um, as she's uh, after that shot, we get a scene of a man, and he's talking with a friend of his. His name is Sam, uh, and he is an American in Italy, um, 
talking with a guy named Carl, who's a, a friend of his. I was going through kind of a bad period, a little short on inspiration. Go to Italy, he said, waxing poetic. You need peace, tranquility. That's Italy. <laughs> inspiration will come to you. Nothing ever happens in Italy. May he roast in hell. <laughs> so, anyway, I came here. I believed him. Toured the country, saw the monuments, then spaghetti, wine, the atmosphere. Great. Only I'm dead broke. I haven't written a line in two years. Did he say something in that scene about that he wrote pamphlets about the preservation of rare birds? Or did I just make that up in my mind? Sam Dalma's great hope of American literature. Now writing manuals on the preservation of rare birds. It'd be funny if I won a prize for it. That's a pretty neat coincidence, isn't it, about Carl? <laughs> <laughs> Good for Carl and his bird thing. <laughs> uh, right. So Sam is walking home, and it's nighttime by now. And uh, I love this shot. And this is what actually makes the movie for me. I just think this is a really clever, creative uh, kill scene, even though it, it, it turns out there's no kill happening. He walks by a, a large, it's like a museum, and the entire face of the storefront, I guess, of this museum is glass. And as he's walking by, he sees a, a struggle happening. There's a kind of a loft in there. It's very well lit. And that's one creepy mm-hmm. thing about this whole scene, I think, is that it's completely dark outside. There doesn't seem to be anybody else on the street, although there could be, uh, except for Sam. And this museum is extremely well lit and bright. It's paint. It's like white all around the inside. And except yeah. for the giant creepy artwork statues that are in there, you can't help but see what's happening in here. And what's happening right. is there's a killer with a hat on and like probably a mask and a, a shiny kind of vinyl jacket and black pants and everything and uh, gloves. And he is struggling with a woman and there's a knife between them. She ends up uh, stabbed. And she comes stumbling down the steps as the killer leaps off and uh, runs away. In the meantime, Sam is trying to get in. Uh, He can see this happening right in front of him, but he can't do anything about it. So he's banging on the window. He he opens the door and finds a way into uh, the the door. But there's another – it's like there's another glass partition there and another door that he can't get into. Uh, And so he watches this whole thing play out in front of him. He's totally helpless to stop it. And uh, at this point, the victim, who is the woman, is just crawling towards him. He's, she's bloody. He even turns around and is trying to yell for help. But uh, there's a guy who walks by and kind of looks in, and he's more focused on Sam than what's going on inside because Sam's banging on the window. And he's yelling, but on the other side, it's like the guy can't hear because he can't hear through the glass and kind of walks on. So here's Sam trapped between two planes of glass, hoping to try to get the police's attention. Finally, he just slumps against the wall. And it turns out the police do show up. Maybe the guy found somebody or, or put right. two, two together or whatnot. But the police do show up a few moments later. And there they find Sam with this woman um, ostensibly dead uh, laying down on the floor inside. I got to say, this was a weird scene. Now, I liked it too. I liked the fact that um, the the action was so framed, you know, just up against this white wall. And I knew, having seen uh, the other one that we watched, Deep Red, that this was going to be significant, that uh, Sam can't, I mean, he, he, can, he can see what's going on, but at first he's on the other side of the street. So there's like 
buses going by between him and the storefront. And um, we're just kind of getting flashes of what's happening. And eventually he gets closer and he kind of, you know, he sees the end of the struggle and he sees the guy run away. And I, and it becomes a plot point that he, I feel like he even says that I know that I saw what I needed to see to solve this mystery, but I just can't remember what it was. Oh yeah. And the same thing was true in deep red. We knew that the, investigator whoever that was whoever was the person doing the investigating in that movie we knew that they had seen and that we had probably seen the key that was going to solve this thing and so i was watching really closely knowing there there's going to be something in this scene that's going to be you know the the tip off Uh, and as it turns out um there is I, i don't know if that's a trademark of his if that's kind of is that common in these movies it is it is common i mean it's not in all of them but it is a common thing and and argento himself does like to do this where he likes to frame the plot around the the man who gets thrust into it you know character which there always is one it's sort of like uh, the man who knew too much, you know, over and over again. Right. N- having seen something and having to, eventually the clue comes out of his mind, right? It's all something something visual that he needs to remember, which is, you know, it's a convenient way to do it because at any point in the movie, no matter how the investigation is going, the guy can, oh yeah, see something and remember it, which then <laughs> brings, the, <laughs> brings it to a close, right? <laughs> right. Well, And that's the thing, like, I wouldn't call it a criticism, but... It, it, it's it's almost frustrating as a viewer knowing that like just figure it out like, <laughs> why do we have to go through all of this to get to the answer when i know that at the end you're just going to remember and like that's going to be the thing that tips it off now here um arguably uh you know, there's something that happens at the end that sparks the memory, and, and that makes sense. It's not nonsensical, but just knowing that all of the evidence is there, it just, oh, I don't know, it's frustrating to me. I'm like, <laughs> get there faster. <laughs> you should be able to figure this out. But, you know, for me, uh, it's, and the other, it's almost like yeah. an Encyclopedia Brown story, you know, where part of the fun of reading it is knowing that you should have all the clues uh, to piece it together. You just, you yourself can't remember, you know, you yourself can't figure out what it was that you saw i feel like when we were kids there was a tv show or 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 something where they would do this there would be some mystery and at some point in the story they would pause and say you have all the clues you need now like i don't know maybe it was like a video board game or something Uh but um it's that type it's that type of thing where all right you've got all the clues put it all together um and it is fun it is fun to try to put the stuff together um so it's not a criticism it's just kind of an observation the other thing about this scene and this was weird throughout. And again, I don't know for me, and I don't know if this is just the style, but there's a lot, this scene, like after the killer has run away, it's pretty long. He's trying to get people's attention and he keeps looking at this woman and this woman is just slowly, like first she's kind of stumbling around and then she falls on the ground. And like, I couldn't even tell at first if she was stabbed because there wasn't very much blood. Eventually you see that there is blood, but she's kind of writhing on the floor and crying and moaning and it goes on for a while. And that happens at other points in the movie too, there's one of the kills. I think it was the one that you um, referenced earlier uh, where the, the girl is almost partially nude. When the killer comes in, to kill her she's laying in bed and he's standing there um and she just screams 
and then just lays there and continues to like scream and moan. Like she doesn't jump up. She doesn't try in any way to defend herself. The killer just like kind of approaches her and starts messing with her. And she just lays there moaning and crying. Um, And then there's another, there's another scene nearer towards the end of the movie where Sam's girlfriend is in peril. Somebody, the killer is trying to break into her apartment and she just does a lot of laying on the floor and crying. Like, (laughs) Like this killer's trying to break in and she's just like laying on the floor crying i'm like girl you need to like get a knife or you know something i mean to be fair she does try to escape and it's the fact that she can't get out that that makes her so upset but i'm i i just kept like asking the tv what good is are you doing laying there on the floor crying like you're just (laughs) waiting for the killer to get in to get to you um so i don't know if that's just you know typical of the genre or what but it for me it was almost humorous and that was something else that i wanted to ask you because i know that you're a fan of this movie and have seen it a bunch of times there are so many moments where really silly things happen. Like, yeah. for example, when the police do arrive, um, the, the main inspector is named uh, Inspector Morsini or something like that. Um, and they come in and they're all standing around this woman on the floor. They haven't moved her. They haven't turned her over, nothing. Um, and they're just standing there around her. And the inspector goes, uh, it wouldn't appear to be serious. Like, <laughs> like she's just stabbed on the floor, not moving. We haven't like assessed her really in any way, but it doesn't look like it's that bad. <laughs> like, I, I really got the feeling at several points during this movie that it was trying to intentionally be funny. Oh, a- am I right? Undoubtedly so. Yeah, there are, there are moments of flat out yeah humor, and and some of it falls flat, some of it's a little bizarre, and some of it hits the mark. But you're right. I I think it's clear. Yeah, that that he's he's trying to inject some humor into the proceedings, which is a little different actually from some of his other films. In that one thing that I think makes his movies so stark is the bleakness of them in in many ways. Uh, this sort of um, I don't want to say nihilistic, but just kind of a, yeah, bad things are happening and there's really nothing funny about it and we're just going to keep showing you bad things, um, which is something that you find a lot in Asian horror, um, you know, that that we that we expect, I think, in Western horror, which is we always inject a little bit of comedy, a little bit of winking, something in there to kind of soften the blow, I think, a little bit of this type of subject matter that we're doing. Here, it seems like he's trying to cop an American style in some ways. I feel like uh, that that's maybe what he's doing. There's a lot about this movie, I think, that that feels like he's intentionally trying to make it a marketable film worldwide by making a little more Hollywood conventional. And that's one of the things I think is sticking the humor in. Well, it makes sense. And apparently it worked because, like you said, it was so popular for so long. And it has a really big following, I guess, uh, even people today, which I got to say, you know, this is one of those things. I know you're a huge fan of the genre and I I don't want to disparage it in any way. It's just not really my cup of tea. But um, the uh, the I I appreciated the humor. I thought it was really silly in some parts, um, but I found myself, you know, cracking a smile and even laughing out loud a couple of times. And so for somebody who's not a huge fan of the genre anyway that was kind of uh, refreshing to me 
Yeah, I agree. Now, what, what about about the girl writhing? I feel like in this case, at least, the girl really had no choice. <laughs> She'd been stabbed already. She really didn't have anything to do but but collapse uh, and try her best to reach out. But in any case, we do kind of assume that she's dead until the detectives come in and assess one way or another that she's going to live and they take her out of here. So it's not really a murder that we watched. It was more of an attempted murder. Um, But again, it's not like he came by in the nick of time unless he was the one who was able to attract the police's attention. He wasn't much help to her. Right. And I think. Right. Right. And I think that's what, you know, would get under your skin if you were a guy in this situation. And I think that just the way that the the, the shot is that, that it's framed with that glass wall, it's like the fourth wall there. You can do nothing about it. You can't cross it. All you can do is watch in helplessness. And that's what I like about this scene is just the way that it's yeah. visually and, and conceptually set up that way. I would hate to be a guy in this particular situation. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I liked that. I thought it was effective, too. I just thought that it was kind it like it lingered kind of for a strangely long time uh, on it. I, I don't know. Maybe that was, you know, just to kind of build the suspense or the dread. And, and you know, I, it's fine. Um, this woman who was stabbed, we find out her name was Monica. She and her husband, well, I guess her husband owns this gallery. Um, and her husband, Alberto, shows up uh, pretty much right away as soon as the cops show up, um, which to me made him suspicious right from the beginning. Yep. But I also thought if it was him... And he's shady throughout. Like, and I feel like Argento or or whomever you know, kind of goes out of his way to make this guy shady throughout. And you know, there's some payoff there in the end. But um, I, I wasn't really sure what to make of it because after this, anytime you see Alberto and Monica together, it almost seems as though he's trying to keep her from talking with the investigators. Like he's keeping her very sheltered, and so you wonder is he maybe in some way uh, involved in this? But anyway, Sam, uh, the police are interested in Sam because he was the only one there on the scene um, and because he was virtually trapped there. I mean, somehow he had gotten locked in that kind of, I don't know what you call it, lobby or vestibule right outside the gallery. So the police kind of think that maybe he's a suspect. Maybe he stabbed her and then he tried to run away, but he had gotten caught. And so they take away his um, passport, and that's what uh, keeps him there because he had been planning to go. You're out of your mind. You can't just grab a foreign citizen and accuse him of murder. No one's accusing you. Giving me the third degree. It's illegal. I want to call my consulate right now. Go ahead. Call anyone you want. Call the president of the United States. And that's also what kind of motivates him to try to want to find out who the actual killer is so that he can get out of Italy with his girlfriend, uh, Julia, uh, as they had planned. But when the police are questioning him, we kind of get the backstory. There have been three unexplained murders, all women. Um, so the police believe that there's a dangerous maniac at large. Um, and, and now Sam is potentially uh, a suspect. <laughs> they, they do a lineup um, for him to see if he can – because he says that he didn't get a good look at the guy. But they, they, keep, they keep saying, keep trying to remember, try to remember. And they question him over and over and over again. And finally they uh, have him look at a lineup. And this is another one of those parts that was so – funny um for the lineup the the inspector says bring out the perverts (laughs) (laughs) 
and these these guys these guys come walking across the stage behind the two-way glass and so we can see them and um the last one i thought was a woman um but he goes hey hey not her i i've told you holga belongs with the transvestites not with the perverts (laughs) (laughs) i was just cracking up i thought it was so funny um and then another right after that they're talking about all these clues that they have, and somehow they have figured out that based on the evidence, they found a black glove at the scene of the this last crime, the one that um, Sam thwarted. They found a black glove, and they analyzed it, and they found like residue from cigars. So they know that this guy is left-handed and that he smokes cigars. And then I didn't even really understand what they were doing here. They like typed all this information into this computer. And this is a computer in the 70s. So like it takes up an entire room and it's like bleep, blop, bleep, blop. And they're like, this will give us an explanation of who the killer is. And it like prints out this, <laughs> like, it's not even a character sketch. It's all like just zeros and ones um you know this is rough outline of like a shady criminal and then some (laughs) stats underneath it i I, you know their very advanced technology was helping them with this but it didn't really seem to help them all that much i I liked this scene i felt like it was a charming like 1970s version of csi like the computer room that they're in is is like a total classic computer room with the reel-to-reel tape spinning behind them and the guy in the white coat who's running the computer and all that and they're doing as best as they can without you know dna at this time so he he does the blood microscopic examination my impression was that what they were doing was really matching this against a database of known killers uh or of of people in the city Um, because it did spit out that there were five people with criminal records that matched this profile and 150,000 people in the city that it could match as well um which was you know not a lot to go on right Oh, and there's a scene between here where he's walking home and he almost gets hacked with a meat cleaver. Oh, right. Except a woman yeah. screams at one point. So we know that he's kind of in danger as well. So Sam goes to visit Monica after she's released from the hospital. She's the woman who was stabbed. But the husband, Alberto, won't let him see her. Again, he's just acting really shady. And then Sam, apparently being you know the sleuth that he is, very sneakily tosses Alberto's cigarettes to him. And Alberto catches it with his left hand. And it's almost like the the character camera lingers there and alberto like looks at his left hand like oh no i've revealed too much like it's 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 frankly a little bit heavy-handed but it didn't bother me because it felt very much like a pulp novel um you know where they really are kind of not even laying on clues really thick but you have you wonder if these are clues or if they're red herrings and it could go either way um because you're getting so much uh thrown at you but sam at this point is becoming obsessed at one point he even says i'm obsessed (laughs) (laughs) that's true so he and julia research uh, uh the previous victims and one of them had worked at an antique shop so Sam goes there. Another really funny scene where the owner of the uh, antique shop is this older guy who's like flamboyantly gay and is clearly um, kind of flirting with Sam and making making Sam uncomfortable. Oh, good morning. Can I help you? Uh, yes, I'd like to see something. Oh, yes, in, uh... you're interested in porcelain. Oh, uh... you have marvelous taste. <laughs> These pieces are beautiful. Uh, Simply divine. How much is this one? Three hundred. Oh, oh, but I won't be unreasonable about it. Not with you. Um. Sam asks about this woman who had been killed, and he said, Oh, 
lovely girl. <laughs> but uh, uh, a little unusual, you know. Oh? Well, yes. It was said that uh, she preferred women. Oh. oh. I couldn't care less. Of course not. <laughs> I'm no racist, for heaven's sake. <laughs> 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 oh gosh i just thought it was so funny now you know now that we're going back over it, i'm remembering how many of these parts that there were that were really just laugh out loud funny um but he finds out that this woman had sold a painting um that night right before she had left and she had been murdered right after that and sam gets a copy of the painting uh, not a copy, really, a photograph uh, of the painting. And um, it it was really difficult for me at first to tell what it was. Uh, eventually, you can see that it's kind of like this pastoral scene, but down in one, um, towards the bottom, um, there's imagery of a man perpetrating violence against a woman, killing her or something. There's blood and, and stuff. Um, and so he takes it home and hangs it on the wall. I guess he thinks that that's going to be a clue. And Julia doesn't like it, but we get the camera closes up or, or zooms in rather on the picture of the painting. And when it zooms up it or zooms out, excuse me, it colorizes. And we see that this painting is actually hanging in the killer's apartment. Uh, so um, we know that he's at least kind of on the right track because things are falling into place. That's right. Um, we'd even seen some interstitials here of a girl being scoped out at a racetrack, some more of those photographs being taken of a woman from the killer's point of view. And from this point now, where we're in the killer's apartment, we get uh, the build-up to our next victim. And this is the victim I was talking about earlier. Again, just another random person who's, uh, who's coming home, being dropped off at her apartment and walking inside. And going inside, getting undressed... I thought that the whole lead-up, the whole build-up to this next kill was really stylishly shot. And again, that's what I love about these films. You get oh, – it's almost film noir-ish. You get lots of darkness mm -hmm. here. You get close-ups of different things. Really well-framed scene, I think, here of – which is looks like it's from the killer's point of view of the girl getting dropped off going into her apartment. And then – the shot moves back a little bit, and it reveals the killer in the corner. And then about a moment later, you see the woman pass by the window in the top part of her apartment in shadow. Just just really stylish. Uh, I know mm -hmm. that at the time, Argento was was labeled the Hitchcock of, of Italy at, at one point. I don't know if that's completely fairly deserved, but... It's things like this, I think, that uh, his, his real deliberate shooting style that uh, gave him that title. It's, it's very Hitchcockian. It's very reminiscent of that, how Hitchcock would really set up visually these, these really elaborate and really stylish scenes, uh, which give you a lot of information and which really unfold the plot visually for you within a single frame. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that we see, I think that we see kind of hints of that in this movie. I think that his style continues to. Now, again, I've only seen this and the other one that we watched, Deep Red, and I have seen Suspiria. But by the time you get to Suspiria, I think that he had really kind of honed his craft, and and much, you know, there was much more of this strong stylized stuff. It's here, but it's a little bit few and far between. Yes, I agree with you in this kill scene, and then in the next or one of the other kill scenes, um, there's also some really interesting stylized stuff with a woman in a very interesting um, staircase, and you kind of you can see up and down the staircase, and some really neat framing and and stuff there. Um, 
I, I frankly, I would have liked to have seen more of it here, but what was, what was there was really good and, and interesting to, to watch. Yeah, you're right. It, it, it pops into this when there's something interesting going on. Otherwise, it's, it's pretty pedestrian, you know, shot of this guy talking to this guy kind of stuff. You're right. Right, right. The kill here, uh, the woman, like you said, is kind of laying there on the bed in her, in her very skimpy negligee when the killer comes in. It doesn't seem to put up much of a struggle. He kind of gets on top of her, puts his hand over her mouth. Uh, and then uh, with her arm still to her side, <laughs> again, you'd think she'd be fighting back in some way, shape, mm-hmm. or form here. Um, he cuts her negligee open and then goes down to her panties uh, and cuts those as well and tears them off. And the way it's done, it's I think it's extremely uncomfortable, uh, especially it is knives around genitals, um, you know, just all that penetration imagery here. Um, it kind of looks like, in many ways, an implied rape scene but yes. but it's not gross. Uh, it does cut away before we see anything happen. That it does, and I was expecting sexual violence, and that always makes me uncomfortable um, in in film. Period. But it doesn't go that far. Um, it's just it's sort of implied, you know, that with with the ripping off of the clothes. Um, but that's as far as it goes. And then, well, I mean, as far as we know, that he kills her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So at this point, um, it's clear that Sam is not the the killer here, and so right. he, uh, the detective visits his apartment, says, look, we had another murder here. Can you be of any more help? Uh, please come back to the station. And he basically just asks him the same thing. I know you saw something. I know you saw something. Can yeah. you remember what it was? But really, it's just a last-ditch effort to get something more out of Sam to try to jog his memory. Um, and when it doesn't happen, he hands him his passport back and says, look, uh, here you go. Basically, Sam is free to go. And I love this point in the movie. It's an interesting turn where Sam is now so obsessed with this that he decides to stick around. Uh, And uh, that really – this is the point at which the relationship – this is another thing I like about this movie is I think there's a nice kind of cute relationship between Sam and the detective. It's this professional but also friendly. They joke around a little bit here and there. Uh, They seem to lean on each other. It's not this kind of movie where – the police are bumbling idiots, and it's up to this you know, one guy to solve the, the crime. And it's also not a case where the police are hostile towards him for any kind of reason, uh, th- that maybe he's still under suspicion or whatnot. But there's just really a friendly, collaborative relationship that develops between these two guys that, that I really liked. Sure, sure. Sam uh, ends up saying, well, the, the de- detective says, is there anything I can do for you? And Sam says, well, I would really like to see this prostitute's pimp. There was a prostitute uh, who was one of the, was the, another one of the victims. And he said, that can be arranged because the guy's in jail. So he goes to visit this guy in jail. And here's another element of humor I think you're talking about, Craig. Yep. This, this guy is, is weird. He's weird looking, and he has this weird tick uh, he has trouble talking, kind of Tourette's maybe, like sort of a Tourette's syndrome. Well, he calls it a stutter, and he does stutter, but he also punctuates nearly every sentence with so long. Uh, yeah, she was my girl, so long. Where are you going? You, you said so long. Oh, I always say that. I, if I don't, I stutter. Oh. I see. Um, what do you want to know? I'm trying to help uh, 
trying to help the police find the killer. Uh, that's good. So long. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, that's not really a thing, um, unless it is Tourette's. But it's funny. And he, he is weird looking and comically so. And he even says something like, do I look like a pimp? <laughs> and like, yeah. <laughs> You look exactly like a pimp. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's funny. I, and I feel like he doesn't really get much uh, information out of that guy. But then there's a weird – I have written in my notes, I have no idea what's going on here. Because we know that the inspector ha- is having someone tail Sam. And Sam knows it too. It's, it's, it's for his safety. And at one point, he and Julia are walking down the street together and the tail is behind them, walking behind them. And this car comes around the corner and runs down the bodyguard and starts chasing after Sam and Julia. And I feel like Sam gets around a corner and stashes Julia somewhere and he keeps running. And eventually the guy who's driving gets out and starts chasing him. And I had no idea what was going on because we see this guy's face clearly. And, And I thought, are, are, are they now revealing who the murderer is to us? I mean, the murderer has been taunting the police at this point. He's been calling and saying there will be more. The killer has completely been shrouded in mystery. And I was really confused as to what was going on here. And there's this long chase scene through like the streets and then like a, a big parking lot full of buses. <laughs> and then eventually they kind of, they kind of run out into public and Sam sees some other people and says, there's a guy following me. And um, everybody kind of looks around and he turns around and the guy is there, but the guy just turns around and starts walking away. And then he starts following the guy and they end up like at this hotel and this guy's wearing this really distinctive yellow jacket. And so he, he follows him into this hotel and he asks the bellhop, have you seen a guy in a yellow jacket and a blue cap? And the guy's like, oh yeah, he's in there. So Sam goes and he opens, he starts to open these sliding doors and he sees the yellow jacket right in front of him. But when he opens it further, it's like this whole convention of these guys in these yellow jackets. And apparently it's like a convention of ex prize fighters or something. And he never does find the guy that was following him. I still am confused as to what was going on there. I feel like maybe we have to get to the end of the big reveal before you can explain it. But will you be able to explain that to me? <laughs> because I was I was really confused. Well, I think what happened here is that the, that the car that was that ran over the tail and then was chasing after them that this guy who hopped out of the car was a passenger in the car. So he was somebody that the killer was, like, dropping off uh, to run after and kill Sam, like a hired thug, basically. Okay, okay. Yeah, because he says something into the car, and the car speeds off. You're right, you can kind of know, the the minute you can see his face, you know, okay, we're not dealing with the killer here, but he's definitely in danger. Um, I like this scene. It is a long chase scene. Uh, It is maybe a little too long, and it's maybe a little unbelievable at times. But again, it's just shot with some serious style. And I love at this point the music behind it. There's this, it it really turns into this great jazz score. Very cool. Um, as, as, as he's chasing him around. And uh, really what this is, is it's just another device to move along the plot because Sam, Sam actually goes back to the pimp and explains what happened. And here is where the pimp can help him out. He's like, oh yeah, these guys, these prize fighters or whatever, you need to talk to this guy named Faina and uh, I'll send him to you. So Fahina, Fahina um, comes later. But in between that whole aspect, we get another kill, which is uh, what you had mentioned earlier about the woman 
who climbs a sty- her, her cool staircase up to her house, uh, and uh, she gets cut up with a razor. This is maybe one of the most brutal, I think, yeah. of the kills, yeah. because we actually see more. And also, it's just kind of brutal anyway. Uh, she is coming home to her apartment, and she can't. the elevator's not working, so she has to walk up this really long but cool staircase to her apartment. And then about halfway up, uh, the lights go out, so she has to light a match. She's got like a lighter or something on her that she has to light in order to see her way up. So it's all darkness and shadows, and uh, we know what's coming, and it's pretty suspenseful. When Then on that one, one of these floors, she finally sees the elevator. It's there, and it's lit, and she's going to go inside to try to go the rest of the way up. When she goes inside, the killer's like right there, and he pulls out a razor like the kind of razor you'd shave your face with, like a straight razor. A straight razor, yeah. And just hacks her, is hacking her face up. Uh, again, it's not super gross, but there are at least one or two close-ups there that we see of the knife cutting her and some blood splattering around. And, and it's just a, it's kind of a brutal thing anyway. That leads to another scene um, that I was a little bit confused about. So this guy uh, that the pimp recommended, Fiona, he comes and there's a little bit of comedy there where he, you know, kind of talks in riddles and stuff. But um, eventually he sends Sam to this apartment where Sam finds a syringe and there's a dead guy there. I don't know who that what, what what was going on there. The dead guy was the killer who was chasing him. Was the the prize fighter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. He gives he gives Sam a name uh, and an address or he gives Sam an address, I think. Um and he goes to this place. Yeah, and you're right. It's kind of in a rundown part of town. It almost looks like a bit of a junkyard that somebody set up shop in. And uh when he goes inside, uh it finds the syringe. I'm not sure what the syringe had anything to do with. Um, to, as far as I can tell, this guy is just hired to get Sam. He doesn't seem connected to any of the other murders because we've seen the other murders and this guy's not involved. Right. But I don't know if it's something about taking drugs or whatnot. But anyway, you're right. And th- that was really kind of cool, too, because anytime a guy's wandering around an empty apartment, you do expect somebody eventually to jump out at him or something like that. And instead, what happens is this dead body is kind of flopped down in this pretty spooky position. So clearly what's happened here is the killer has offed this guy before he can say anything uh, to Sam because he failed. All right, so um, as you mentioned earlier, the the killer is taunting the police a little bit in that he's made at least one phone call uh, to the detective, which they recorded. He also makes a phone call to Sam and actually says Sam he needs to lay off or he's going to basically kill his girlfriend, Julia. So Sam gets right. threatened, but he also is uh, prescient enough to record that as well. So the, we go back again to this this awesome high-tech 1970s computer room where they've been doing the voice analysis on the two phone recordings. And uh, the best that they can come up with from here is that there are two different people um, behind the recordings. Even though this person was using a voice changer, and even to the viewers... Um, this sounds exactly the same. Um, he shows him an oscilloscope and talks about vocal ranges and blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, he's convinced that these were actually two different phone calls. The other thing was that in the beginning, in the cop's 
phone call, uh, he had heard something in the background, some kind of noise that he couldn't make out. Nobody clearly knew what it was, and he had asked uh, their technician to analyze it. And the technician had said, we've compared it against database recordings of like millions of things from construction sites to all this stuff, and we still can't figure out what that sound is in the background. So we're going to keep looking. <laughs> right, right. And Sam also plays it for for his friend from the beginning of the movie. Was it Carl? Is that his name? Yep. Yeah, he also plays it for that friend. And the friend says, gosh, that's really familiar. I, I can't place what it is, but I, I know I can figure it out. And so um, we figure that's probably going to be pretty significant. Then there's a little uh, side. Sam kind of goes, he's now, still interested in that. Now, oh, real, sorry, go ahead. Real quick, that bit with Carl I thought also was another interesting cast of suspicion on somebody because in that scene as Carl's sitting and listening to the thing, we see that he's smoking cigars. And he seems, uh, and, and they make kind of a deal out of the fact that he wants to take the tape, right? I mean, you yes. want to think that it's, it's, it's because he's trying to help his friend, but he also takes the tape and walks away, and it kind of lingers on that fact. So there was a point here which I thought, hmm, that would be that would be a very jalo thing to do to bring in this guy that we've only seen like once or twice before who seems like a total ancillary character and somehow try to connect him with this. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I I kind of miss that. Well, and it would make sense. It, it's a good red herring because this guy seems really friendly, so you wouldn't expect him. So if it had turned out that it was him, that would have been a good twist. The, not that the twist isn't good, it is. Um, but it's not Carl. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so uh, Sam is still interested in this painting. So he finds out who painted it and he goes to visit this artist, this uh, Berto Consalvi or something like that. <laughs> and this whole scene, it's a funny scene because it's this eccentric artist who like keeps cats because he eats them. But it doesn't really advance the plot very much, except for that it gets Sam away from Julia. And so we get a scene where the killer comes and uh, is, is trying to get into Sam's apartment where Julia is. Um, but at the last minute, um, Sam, uh, arrives and the killer runs away. And this really is where things start to become clear because Carl figures out what the sound on the tape is. I think I finally figured out what that creaking sound is. Sam, it's very peculiar. What is it? It's the call of Hornitus nevalis, a magnificent bird with long white feathers that look like glass. What's so strange about it? Well, the only place in the world that bird can live is northern Siberia. <laughs> Are you sure? Positive. In any case, it's almost impossible to keep one of those birds alive in captivity. In fact, there's only one specimen in the whole of Italy. And conveniently, only one, uh, and it's at the local zoo. <laughs> so they go to the zoo, they, they see this bird, and um, Sam immediately realizes that the apartments right above this bird's enclosure is the apartment of the couple from the beginning, Monica and Alberto. And so he thinks that they've got it figured out. They go up there. He's got the police with him, and Monica and Alberto are, in fact, um, struggling with one another uh, again. 
And somehow I feel like Monica gets away and the police and Sam, the inspector and Sam are struggling with Alberto at the window and Alberto falls out the window. They're able to catch him momentarily and he's dangling out the window saying, please help me. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But they can't hold on to him and he falls probably like five or six stories. Um, And the next thing we see is him down on the ground and the police standing over him. And he says, I'm the murderer. I did it. Um, please take care of my wife. She tried to stop me. I love her. And we think that that's it. We, the police think that the uh, murder is solved. It's a little bit convenient, but you know, all the clues have logically progressed here. Um, knowing, however, what little I do know about the genre, I knew there was going to be a twist. And when Monica goes missing, Sam goes off trying to find her, and that's where the big twist comes. That's right. He goes into this building and he's wandering around in darkness. And uh, finally he ends up in an, in one room and the lights flip on and it's actually the art gallery. Now they've since installed some new art there, including this giant wall that has all these, these spikes all over it. That's, that's at the ground floor, but he's up at the top floor in exactly the same spot that the previous struggle happened. And he gets attacked by the person with the knife. He sees Monica, and he remembers the knife. This is where he remembers the crucial point uh, from the scene before. And that is that the knife was pointed in the wrong direction. It wasn't Sam trying to kill Monica, but it was Monica. Alberto. I'm sorry, Alberto. Right, it wasn't Alberto, right. Yes, it wasn't Alberto. It was Monica trying to kill Alberto because the knife was pointed in that direction between the two of them. So anyway, there's a bit, a bit, a bunch of a struggle. They fall down the stairs. They go down, and this giant art piece with all the spikes all over it tips over onto Sam. She pushes it over onto him, and he, mm-hmm. thankfully, no, none of the spikes go through him miraculously. Right, but, he, but he's trapped uh, under there, and she starts playing with him. But conveniently, and of course, I'm thinking the whole time. You know, again, this is another. T- this is the same place. It's it's still a terrible place to kill somebody because you're completely exposed to the street. But conveniently, at this point, the cops have caught up with him and they jump in right away uh, from behind, and they get her. So it's really the cops coming in and save him at the last minute. Right. And then um, we see the inspector on a, a local news program, and he explains, you know, once they figure out who it is, he explains what had happened. Apparently, Monica had been assaulted at some point earlier in her life, and um, the assault had led her to kind of collapse mentally, and she spent some time uh, in a hospital or an institution, but eventually she was deemed sane enough to go back out into the world, and she was fine until... um, Being an art dealer, she had gone to this antique shop, and she had seen this painting of a woman being attacked, and that had, again triggered a mental breakdown. And for whatever reason, instead of identifying with the victim in the painting, um, her mental snap had caused her to identify with the attacker. And so that had led her to do all of these things. And her husband um, had found out about it and had tried to control and contain her and cover up 
for for her crimes and and maybe he was the one who hired the hitman to try to kill sam to try to get him out of the way maybe he thought sam was too much on the trail but one way or another monica ends up in a mental institution and uh sam and julia fly off to america to live happily ever after <laughs> yes now the paint <laughs> the painting at least was the painting of her own assault um because the one it thing was that, yeah you didn't catch that the the one thing that we no. did the one piece of information that we got from the artist uh, over at his house was the origin of the painting. A maniac got hold of a girl I knew, tried to cut her up, just stopped him in time, put him in an asylum for life. And so it was a painting of her own assault that she saw. And that's oh, what, well, that makes even more sense. That's why it triggered her, yeah. And of course, being an art dealer, she was a friend of this painter. So Ah, well, there, there you go. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, again, and it makes a lot more sense than, you know, if you dive down this, this rabbit hole of giallo pictures, you're going to find that n- most of them don't neatly play out like you would expect a TV crime drama to play out, and, and this one does. A lot of times there's such supreme leaps of logic and believability that you just kind of have to go with it, and that's what I do because, right. I again, I would not say that this is the best picture I've ever seen. I couldn't tell you why it was so popular for three years, except maybe it was the first of its type, really. Um, mm. But I can say that uh, that I love it just for the style and the watchability, and it's the beginning of a great career. Freaking love Argento, love the stuff he's done. When you get tired of seeing conventional type horror movies or, or mysteries or things, you can always turn to uh, somebody like him, some foreign director who just by nature of the fact that they're out of the Hollywood system and in kind of a different world over there, uh, just I don't know, just comes up with different ways of filming things, different ways of acting and styling. It doesn't always work, but I would say it's always interesting. And for me anyway, it's always pretty entertaining. Yeah, oh, I, you know, like I said, not exactly my cup of tea, um, not my favorite genre, but I do really appreciate uh, Argento's style, and I think that he has a really unique style. Um, maybe, you know, as far as I know, uh, probably his most well-known film is Suspiria. And um, I've only seen that once, but um, I was really impressed with the art, the artistry uh, of that movie. Lots of really cool cinematography, excellent use of color. Um, and I think that uh, he really, you know, he's, he's established his legacy um, and rightfully so, because uh, he brought a lot of interesting things to the table. I know that they have finished uh, shooting on a remake of Suspiria, which I, and both excited and very nervous about because uh, his style is so unique to him. And I think that it would be something that could so easily be screwed up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I guess we'll see. Well, the movie is nothing but style. I mean, there's very little to it. It's almost like a big, long dream is, is, is how it's always sort of yeah. felt to me. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how a remake is going to, is going to retweak that for a modern audience. Um, yeah, I'm not right. looking forward to it. <laughs> no, me either. I'm not. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad you picked this one for today. It was kind of a nice departure from some of the things that we've been doing uh, lately. And I like to shake it up. So uh, thanks for picking this one. Thanks, Greg. 
All right. Well, thank you again for listening to Two Guys in a Chainsaw. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find us on our website, twoguys.red40.net. And you can find us on our Facebook page. Please like us there. Again, another great place to share us and another place to start up a conversation with us. Tell us what you thought of this film and put in your request for any other films you'd like us to review. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.